Hello, and welcome back to the AK-47 podcast. Uh, This is Kristen Godsey, and I am reading 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kolontai. Today, I'm going to read the second part of the essay, Make Way for Winged Eros, A Letter to Working Youth, that I started reading in the previous episode. So if you haven't listened to that episode, you should go back and make sure that you hear part one, since I'm going to be reading this essay in little chunks. It's really an important essay. It's really one of the core pieces of Alexandra Kolontai's thought around love and sexuality. And I want to do it as much justice as possible while keeping these podcasts at around 15 minutes. I am basically picking up where I left off last time. And at the end of the last episode, so the first part of this essay basically is talking about sexual relations during the revolution and how questions of love and sort of the idea of building a new kind of romantic relationship were sort of set aside because everybody was really stressed out during the revolution and the civil war and the famine. And so people basically didn't have time for anything but sort of shallow sexual relations. Basically, they were just hooking up. What I'm going to do is try to read uh, the second section. And this is where Kolontai is basically saying, okay, so now that we've survived, what do we do? So this is Kolontai. But now the picture changes. The Soviet Republic and the whole of toiling humanity are entering a period of temporary and comparative calm. The complex task of understanding and assimilating the achievements and gains that have been made is beginning. The proletariat, the creator of new forms of life, must be able to learn from all social and psychological phenomena, grasp the significance of these phenomena, and fashion weapons from them for the self-defense of the class. Only when the proletariat has appropriated the laws not only of the creation of material wealth, but also of inner psychological life, is it able to advance fully armed to fight the decaying bourgeois world. Only then will toiling humanity prove itself to be the victor, not only on the military and labor front, but also on the psychological culture front. Now that the revolution has proved victorious and is in a stronger position, and now that the atmosphere of revolutionary elan has ceased to absorb men and women completely, tender-winged Eros has emerged from the shadows and begun to demand his rightful place. Wingless Eros has ceased to satisfy psychological needs. Emotional energy has accumulated, and men and women, even of the working class, have not yet learned to use it for the inner life of the collective. This extra energy seeks an outlet in the love experience. The many-stringed lyre of the god of love drowns the monotonous voice of the wingless eros. Men and women are now not only united by the momentary satisfaction of the sex instinct, but are beginning to experience love affairs again, and to know all the sufferings and all the exaltations of love's happiness. So here, I think in these first two paragraphs of this section, Kolontai is kind of saying, yes, it's important that we have military victories and that we start to think about reshaping the economy in a material way, but we also need to pay attention to our psychology, our psychological state, and particularly our love affairs, which I think for a lot of uh, the Bolsheviks in this period of time might have been a little bit too kind of hippy-trippy or wishy-washy for their taste. And certainly Kolontai very soon fell out of favor uh, because of her 
joining the workers' opposition. And uh, and Trotsky and Lenin sort of make fun of her for precisely really this essay and some of the short stories that she was writing, kind of exploring ideas of love and what it meant for people to start loving each other in a society where they weren't necessarily, they were no longer scrambling just to make ends meet, um, being ruthlessly exploited by the bourgeois class. Now that people, men and women were equal, the equal citizens, where people had the right to divorce, where people were supposedly, according to Kolontai, not just having sex out of basic needs because of the stresses of the revolution or the stresses of the economy, now suddenly they had time and energy to think about love affairs, which she considered a kind of important um, sign of progress for the revolution. Now back to Kolontai. In the life of the Soviet Republic, an undoubted growth of intellectual and emotional needs, a desire for knowledge, an interest in scientific questions and in art and theater can be observed. This movement towards transformation inevitably embraces the sphere of love experiences too. Interest is aroused in the question of the psychology of sex, the mystery of love. Everyone, to some extent, is having to face up to the questions of personal life. One notes with surprise that party workers who in previous years had only time for Pravda editorials and minutes and reports are reading fiction books in which winged Eros is lauded. What does this mean? Is this a reactionary step? A symptom of the beginning of the decline of revolutionary creativity? Nothing of the sort. It is time we separated ourselves from the hypocrisy of bourgeois thought. It is time to recognize openly that love is not only a powerful natural factor, a biological force, but also a social factor. Essentially, love is a profoundly social emotion. At all stages of human development, love has, in different forms, it is true, been an integral part of culture. Even the bourgeoisie, who saw love as a private matter, was able to channel the expression of love in its class interests. The ideology of the working class must pay even greater attention to the significance of love as a factor which can, like any other psychological or social phenomenon, be channeled to the advantage of the collective. Love is not in the least a private matter concerning only the two loving persons. Love possesses a uniting element which is valuable to the collective. This is clear from the fact that at all stages of historical development, society has established norms defining when and under what conditions love is legal, i.e. corresponds to the interests of the given social collective, and when and under what conditions love is sinful and criminal, i.e. when it contradicts the tasks of the given society. So here, basically, Kolontai is making a case that love is not a private matter, that our personal intimate lives are not for our own enjoyment, but in fact, our intimate relations are an inevitable and essential part of the wider political economy, of the wider collective, that it's a social factor. And that the reason that bourgeois society has so many rules regarding when love is okay and what kinds of love are okay and what kind of love is not okay uh, and what kinds of relationships are prohibited is precisely because the bourgeoisie understands that regulating people's personal lives, in particular the relationship of marriage, helps to perpetuate the bourgeois society, very specifically by producing legal heirs 
who are legitimate children who can inherit the private wealth of their fathers, thereby allowing the class system to reproduce itself from generation to generation. One of the things that Kolontai does when she becomes Commissar of Social Welfare in 1917, is to abolish the distinction between legitimate and illegitimate children so that children who are born of relationships outside of the marriage bond are legally entitled to the wealth of their fathers, which basically severely disrupts the private property system. It is also her argument in many ways for the liberalization of divorce and taking away marriage from the church authority. The idea is that if you destabilize the nuclear family, the bourgeois nuclear family, monogamous family, that in fact you are creating a fundamental threat to the perpetuation of private property and therefore the entire bourgeois system of capitalism. Because the reason that women are in these monogamous marriages with men where their fidelity must be guaranteed is precisely for the production of legitimate heirs who can inherit their father's wealth. If there was no wealth to inherit, it wouldn't matter if the children were legitimate or illegitimate. And, you know, in the vision that the Bolsheviks were creating in 1917, the idea was that people would no longer have the kinds of massive amounts of private property that they would want to pass on to their legitimate heirs. So Kalantai is writing this in 1922 at a moment when they're really thinking about how to re-envision the family and what the family relationship and what love relationships are going to look like now that they've created the world's first worker state. In the next section of the essay that I'm going to read, she turns to a brief history, a very brief history of love and sexuality, which is very much drawing on the work of Morgan and Engels and August Bebel. August Bebel, who wrote Woman and Socialism, was a huge inspiration for Kolontai and her work. And here is her sort of thumbnail version of the arguments that many socialists were making about the history of sexual relations between men and women. This section is called Historical Notes. From the very early stages of its social being, humanity has sought to regulate not only sexual relations, but love itself. In the kinship community, love for one's blood relations was considered the highest virtue, The kinship group would not have approved of a woman sacrificing herself for the sake of a beloved husband. Fraternal or sisterly attachment were the most highly regarded feelings. Antigone, who according to the Greek legend risked her life to bury the body of her dead brother, was a heroine in the eyes of her contemporaries. Modern bourgeois society would consider such an action on the part of a sister as highly curious. In the times of tribal rule, when the state was still in its embryonic stage, The love held in greatest respect was the love between two members of the same tribe. In an era when the social collective had only just evolved from the stage of kinship community and was still not firmly established in its new form, it was vitally important that its members were linked by mental and emotional ties. Love-friendship was the most suitable type of tie, since at that time, the interest of the collective required the growth and accumulation of contacts, not between the marriage pair, but between fellow members of the tribe, between the organizers and defenders of the tribe and state. Friendship was praised and considered far more important than love between man and wife. Castor and Pollux were famous for their loyalty to each other and their unshakable friendship, rather than for feats they performed for their country. For the sake of friendship or its semblance, a man might offer his wife to an acquaintance or a guest. The ancient world considered friendship and loyalty unto the grave to be civic virtues. 
Love, in the modern sense of the word, had no place and hardly attracted the attention of either the poets or of writers. The dominant ideology of that time relegated love to the sphere of narrow personal experiences with which society was not concerned. Marriage was based on convenience, not on love. Love was just one among other arguments. It was a luxury which only the citizen who had fulfilled all his obligations to the state could afford. While bourgeois ideology values the ability to love provided it confines itself to the limits set down by bourgeois morality, the ancient world did not consider such emotions in its categories of virtues and positive human qualities. The person who accomplished great deeds and risked his life for his friend was considered a hero and his action most virtuous, while a man risking himself for the sake of the woman he loved would have been reproached or even despised. The morality of the ancient world, then, did not even recognize the love that inspired men to great deeds, the love so highly regarded in the feudal period, as worthy of consideration. The ancient world recognized only those emotions which drew its fellow members close together and rendered the emerging social organism more stable. In subsequent stages of cultural development, however, friendship ceased to be considered a moral virtue. Bourgeois society was built on the principle of individualism and competition, and has no place for friendship as a moral factor. Friendship does not help in any way and may hinder the achievements of class aim. It is viewed as an unnecessary manifestation of sentimentality and weakness. In this part of the essay, Kolontai is doing something that a lot of her contemporaries thought was very important, which was to historicize and contextualize the ways in which relations between people of different classes and people within classes changed depending on the material circumstances, depending on the relations of production or the economic base. What's really important for socialist feminists and people on the left to think about is that we understand if we're reading Marx and Engels and socialist theorists that the superstructure, of course, is determined by the base, that our ideas about law and politics and spirituality are determined by the relations of production on the ground, that Kolontai wants to say that our ideas about love, our ideas about sexuality, our ideas about who we are and, and how we relate to our fellow human beings, our ideas about friendship and companionship are also very much determined by relations of production. And so what's so key about this essay, as I you know think about the next episodes that I'm going to be reading from this essay, it's such an important piece of her work, as I said before, is that she's doing something really radical. She's, she's basically saying that our emotional lives are also completely structured by the economic system within which we live. And since the Soviet Union has just gone through this massive revolution and is in the process of building the first worker state, she's starting to think really lucidly, I think, in this essay about the way that love relationships are going to be improved. And for her, it's definitely a question of improvement by the move away from bourgeois capitalism to a form of socialism. And then eventually, of course, in the Marxist ideology, some form of communism where the state and law wither away and you have pure sort of human relations without the mediation of the dictatorship of the proletariat. So that's it for this episode. I'm trying to keep these short and sweet so that uh, people don't get overwhelmed and also because I'm a really busy person and I have huge respect now for all those people out there who are doing podcasts because I never realized how much 
work it actually is to record and edit and put together a, a podcast. And as an academic, I've generally tended to focus on writing. And so this is a new thing for me. And I really appreciate you tuning in and listening to AK-47, 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kolontai. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and keep up the good fight. Yeah.